I'm Paul John Spaulding, GM of production at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today is Andrew Davis, General Counsel at Kivu Consulting, which offers strategic guidance and fully managed 24 by 7 cybersecurity threat monitoring. To learn more about our sponsor, visit kivuconsulting.com. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. According to Cybersecurity Ventures, a business fell victim to a ransomware attack every 11 seconds in 2021, and the damage from ransomware will exceed $265 billion annually by 2031. Andrew, I want us to start high level today because we are talking about ransomware and some of its implications. What do you feel about these stats? Is this what you're seeing? Is this accurate? What's going on with you and with Kivu? So I would say the stats, I mean, they're probably accurate. I obviously haven't done all that research myself, but what I will say in a lot of conversations with clients that we wind up having, it's not a matter of if so much as a matter of when. The just broad array of techniques that cyber criminals and threat actors are utilizing, you're fighting against a moving opponent. And I mean, for a company, you have to get the security right 100% of the time, whereas a threat actor only has to get correct or get right once. I will say, been a very busy year in 2023. We've definitely seen an uptick, specifically in the ransomware space. And I would say that stat or that piece doesn't surprise me at all. Well, one of the things you were emailing me about before we got on today was how governments are reacting to this. And what we've seen from CISA They've released guidance and research on specific ransomware groups like Lockbit. And there's also been sanctions against members of TrickBot from both the U.S. and the U.K. What are your thoughts generally on how the government bodies are responding to these ransomware threats? Because it is such a big deal, as you just pointed out. It is. So I'm definitely happy to see them involved and working to protect the companies within their borders. One thing that if you look at those articles, sometimes it's at the top, sometimes it's at the very bottom, but the overarching position of the federal government is do not pay. Payment winds up encouraging these threat actors to carry out attacks on other companies. And that statement's all fine and good, but it's hard to say that and have a company that's shut out. Their business operations have been shut down for three days. They don't have viable backups. It's hard to tell them not to pay. But these sanctions, first off, in terms of the TrickBot sanctions, that's the first time we've seen the U.S. and U.K. together sanction an entity or specific individuals. And if you look at who they actually sanctioned and put on their lists, it kind of shows you how these threat actors operate. It's not like these individuals are some kind of money czar or extremely wealthy individual, but you have coders in there who work in this kind of business of ransomware and threat actor group. You have testers, you have admin, you have people in finance, you have HR. And the fact that these government agencies are investing so much time and so many resources in understanding how these threat actors operate so that they can target them and shut them down, I love it. I think it's fantastic to see. Well, you know, you bring up the age-old question of to pay or not to pay. And there are two incidents that come to mind that are very recent to us talking here today. Caesars Palace and also MGM. Both were hit by a ransomware attack. And according to Forbes, MGM's daily revenue was reduced by 10 to 20%. And Caesars ultimately paid $15 million in ransom. Andrew, maybe you could tell us a bit more, expand on those thoughts a little bit, because... 
as you say, it's not so easy to say don't pay the ransom, but also in this situation, they actually did because the revenues were theoretically plummeting, right? I saw one estimate that the impact on MGM was in the tens of billions of dollars. And now I can't validate that. That being said, they were down, I believe, for approximately 10 days, the various pieces of their business operations. And what that can do to a company, I mean, in terms of reputation, people might not trust them for a little while after. In terms of the revenue actually lost because they couldn't operate certain things or do certain things, a potential payment winds up being, you mentioned the $15 million associated, or I believe kind of opined on what Caesars would have paid. That becomes kind of a blip for organizations of this size. And oftentimes, the decision to pay or not to pay is not only guided or steered by whether operations are down. These threat actors are also taking data before they encrypt. So oftentimes, the decision is very much steered by trying to ensure that that data isn't leaked by the threat actor or sold by them on the dark web to another actor who might try to perpetrate some kind of identity theft or fraud of whatever information might have been taken. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of right now is you guys at Kivu, a main part of your job is consulting. So I'm trying to think of you might go to a bigger company, say like Caesars, they have, as you said, if they're losing in the billions of dollars, that's their potential loss. 15 million is a drop in the bucket. But for a smaller company that's maybe only pulling in one to two million in revenue to lose theoretically tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars if they were to pay the ransom, would you advise them any differently in those situations? And of course, it depends on the sector they're in, but I'm just curious about your thoughts. At the end of the day, the determination on whether to pay or not is the business decision. I mean, what we're advising on a lot of times is the threat actor that we're dealing with, their propensity for negotiating their likelihood at actually coming down, what we see as time draws out from them, what their tactics typically are. We're using kind of the playbook from either open source information or from what we ourselves develop from interacting with these specific threat actors to guide them on the risks associated with either payment or non-payment. The informed decision is often really a business decision that the C-suite at the company are deciding whether or not the harm to reputation, whether they can rebuild, things like that are actually outweighed by payment or non-payment. We're not necessarily normally saying absolutely pay or don't pay. We're just trying to give them as much information so that they can make the informed decision. One of the interesting things, and I'm sorry because I am kind of continuing on this though, with Lockbit specifically, very recently actually, this past week, and I don't think it's something that we in advance of this were able to go over, they have apparently recently put out to all of their affiliates. So they operate as a ransomware as a service model. So it's a subscription base, basically. <laughs> but this kind of repository, as I'll call it, of malware, uh, VX Underground recently reported a poll that Lockbit released to its affiliates geared towards trying to add uniformity to their negotiations and potentially taking away some of the ability of clients to negotiate or go down. And they offered kind of a poll of five different options to their affiliates to see how they could more standardize the negotiations that all fall under that giant lockbit name. It's almost like maybe some kind of guidance a customer service representative would have at a larger company who's actually troubleshooting and working with clients, except... We're dealing with, obviously, bad actors on the other side of the table, right? 
Exactly. So even at Kiva, we've seen this year demands from Lockbit specifically, like initial demands that range from 90,000 US dollars to 15 million US dollars. That's a wide, wide discrepancy, wide gap. And I guess the leaders, so to speak, at Lockbit have been looking at it and kind of trying to decide, okay, well, should we allow our affiliates to authorize significant discounts from the initial demands? Should we try to make it more standard? If you go into the network and you locate an insurance policy, you can't accept anything lower than 50% of the insurance coverage for a cyber attack. <laughs> right. It's just something that is, it's odd to think that these criminal enterprises would operate like a business and try to add uniformity to their criminal acts, but that's exactly what we're seeing them do. So when we find things like this out there, that even further kind of alters how we're speaking with our clients and what they're advising them because, I mean, the threat actors are even kind of changing the game on how we may be able to negotiate or communicate to get something reduced that the company finds palatable to pay. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. By the end of this commercial, multiple organizations across the world will be hacked by cyber criminals. Arm yourself with Kivu's cast of cyber crusaders and advanced cyber weapons. Reduce today's cyber risk with our full suite of cybersecurity services. From strategic guidance to fully managed 24 by 7 cybersecurity threat monitoring and hunting. And rest assured, Kivu's 24-7 incident response team based in the U.S. and U.K. moves fast to contain threats, reduce damage, and restore business operations. Since 2009, Kivu fights cybercrime and protects humanity. Go to kivuconsulting.com to learn more. That's K-I-V-U-consulting.com. And now back to the podcast. Well, one thing I did want to bring up here is, and I figured being GC at Kivu, this would be something you'd have a unique perspective on, but I'm talking about cyber insurance. And according to Cybersecurity Ventures, cyber insurance pricing increased by 11% on average during the first quarter of 2023, that's just for the US. And between 2017 and 2021, the majority of claims made were in relation to ransomware and business email compromise. Andrew, what are your conversations with clients like around cyber insurance, or do you have any thoughts on this space in general? I will say that the majority of clients that we are seeing have cyber insurance. So Kivu as a company has a lot of relationships somewhere in the mid fifties, I believe, with the various insurance companies that have kind of vetted our organization and put us on panel as an approved vendor to help their insureds. We do still see a lot of businesses without cyber insurance, but the vast majority of our clients have it or are in the process of obtaining it. Where cyber insurance can really kind of come in to play or just insurance in general, an incident might wind up actually triggering multiple policies. Like, again, we've kind of hit on it a little bit, but the business interruption and costs associated. I'm not claims counsel, but I do encourage companies and we encourage companies to get to know their policy, understand what is covered, how it might be impacted or implicated in the event of a cyber incident, and what claims they may be able to make. Because the costs of an incident, again, the, the actual ransomware payment, can be just very small by comparison to the overall costs, especially, again, once you potentially factor in that business interruption or if notification is involved, if an attorney is brought in because it's determined that some kind of sensitive information was compromised, those legal bills to ensure that your response is, is compliant with your contracts and obligations that are outlined in them, your federal, state, 
or other primary regulator, the various laws that may be implicated if you operate internationally. I mean, those legal bills aren't cheap because it's a really complex analysis. So there's a lot that goes into these incidents. And frankly, it doesn't surprise me that at Kivu and at other organizations, we've seen a very solid uptick in ransomware and just the steady, consistent presence of business email compromises and social engineering. The insurance companies have to be somewhat kind of balancing and risk averse. So as those types of incidents continue to rise, the premiums rise with them to mitigate the potential loss for those companies. Well, I did want to talk a bit about some of the legal consequences that may happen. Obviously, I think for many listeners, the Uber data breach is probably the biggest and maybe the first one that comes to their minds. That was back in 2016. And that was one of those rare times where a CISO was found guilty of a crime due to not disclosing a breach to the FTC but also for paying hackers to keep quiet about the situation. I don't know, Andrew, I was wondering if you would mind sharing your thoughts on when it comes to the potential legal consequences of hacks and data breaches, what does that look like for the companies, but also maybe for the individuals at a certain company that were very directly involved? Obviously, this was a more nefarious case, but I'm just curious what you think. So I'll do a little plug for Kivu and our role in the ransomware negotiation piece, and then I'll dig into a little bit more about other legal implications. So one of the reasons why we are kind of hired and brought in to assist on cases is because we oversee and run down the sanctions due diligence and OFAC and checks to make sure that if payment is going to be made, that we're paying an entity that can be. So we talked a little bit about the government and the U.S. Department of Treasury placing people or designating them as sanctioned individuals. So while the government may say we advise against paying because it's just not a practice, you're paying a criminal, it's not illegal to pay a ransom, but it is illegal to pay a ransom or a cyber extortion to a sanctioned entity. So companies like Kivu and whatever legal representation wind up getting involved, guide through that process to make sure if payment's going to be made, that it actually legally can and that it won't bring any civil or criminal penalties on the company or the organization itself, like Kivu. We have a stake in that game as well when we're looking at all of the available indicators of compromise and tactics of the threat actor to iron down an affiliation or more realistically rule out certain affiliations. So first off, Hiring professionals and involving them to assist in the assessment of the incident response, I can't say enough that it is a vital step for companies to take. Now, in terms of what happened with Uber, I mean, I think that just stands for the proposition that you shouldn't try to cover things up. I liken it to a kid getting kind of caught by their parents. It's way easier and you'll, you'll face, I guess, less pushback or less penalty if you just admit what happened. If you try to cover it up, that has far-reaching implications all the way down to investors. It's just a fraudulent business practice. So I'm not surprised that the federal government sought to actually go after criminally the CISO in that case. And I think that it's just a really good mark to companies to keep things above board as they try to investigate these incidents. Well, Andrew, one of the things I did want to talk about today, I want to zoom out for a minute and just talk about businesses in general, because this is a lot of info. We could probably talk about this forever. But when it comes down to it, do you have any general advice for companies? What can they actually do to kind of guard themselves against these threats? It could be on the legal side. It could be on the practical side. It could be on whatever side you think is relevant. But if you wouldn't mind sharing. 
just to circle back on one thing we talked about is cyber insurance. I don't honestly know what the number is. One of the last times I checked, it was still below 50% of the quote unquote middle market of businesses carry cyber insurance at this point. And that's a dice roll from my perspective. I mean, that's kind of gambling because of what these incidents can wind up entailing in terms of costs. I will say that pretty much in all circumstances, the preventative measures you can take are going to be far less of a cost than actually getting hit with an incident. So other things, I mean, some of them are very simple. I mean, patch and update your systems and software as quickly as possible. I mean, mitigate those vulnerabilities and invest in your InfoSec team to be able to do that. An EDR or MDR solution. So get endpoint monitoring out in your environment to A, know what's connected and B, make sure that it's secure. And if, if something is detected malicious going on, in your environment, you have the ability to shut it down. And that can be done either internally or, again, managed detection and response teams like CrowdStrike, honestly, Kivu. Others like that can get eyes on your environment and will monitor it 24-7, 365 for you. Have viable backups offline and off-site. I mean, if it's on your network, one of the first things that threat actors will do is either look to encrypt or completely delete backups so that you're in a position where you're probably going to have to pay training for employees. I think the MGM incident wound up coming down to at least the initial access, a social engineering scheme. Social engineering, I mean, it's at the very least, it is the front door. Your employees and human error, I mean, that is the front door of access. Now, inside the network, network segmentation, least privilege access, make sure that people only have access to the data that they need so that a threat actor, even if they do get through that initial front door through social engineering, they can't pivot to the entire environment just because they got a lower level employee's credentials. Access controls, have strong policies and review and update them frequently, including an incident response plan. And this last one that I'm going to say with regard to an incident response plan, test it and keep a hard copy of it offline. Because if you get hit with an incident, and I've actually encountered this before, where a company was hit with a ransomware. We asked them who could authorize payment and they didn't know. Like it was the CFO, CEO, COO. They didn't know because it was in their incident response plan, which was on a system that was encrypted and they didn't have access to it. And nobody offhand knew who could authorize. So a lot of these are development, training, things like that. That's a fantastic first step, but then investing the time, resources, et cetera, to your technology. Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts here. I really appreciate being afforded the opportunity to do so. It was really nice talking with you. Kivu is out here to help people stay cyber safe. And the more times that we're able to share information, that's really our goal. We like to talk to people or talk to people before an incident so that we're helping to kind of prevent or mitigate against it. The calls when it's to respond to an incident, we're here to do that. We're here to guide companies through it. But the calls and the discussions on the proactive side are much more pleasant, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. Andrew, thank you so much again. Thank you. I'm Paul John Spaulding, GM of production at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Andrew Davis, General Counsel at Kivu Consulting, which offers strategic guidance and fully managed 24 by 7 cybersecurity threat monitoring. To learn more about our sponsor, visit kivuconsulting.com. To follow all of our media, go to cybercrimemagazine.com.